Hey, we are so thankful that you're taking the time to tune into Grumlaw Church's podcast. It's our hope that this is an encouragement to you as you draw closer to Jesus. If you'd like to find out more about all things Grumlaw or for more info on our in-person gatherings, you can check us out at grumlaw.com. Now lean in. We're expectant for how God is going to use this time to speak to you today. Well, I know we have been saying it all morning, but these seriously are our favorite Sundays of the year. In a nutshell, this is why we do it. Now, if you thought that was lame, keep in mind, I've actually used that joke before, so it's even lamer than you thought. Seriously, our mission as a church is to lead people towards Jesus. And when people go public with their faith, uh, which is what baptism is, it is a public declaration of an inward commitment, uh, we definitely get really excited and uh, we think that this is definitely something worth celebrating 20 different people getting baptized today across our two campuses. So thankful for how God continues to show off and show up in the lives of so many people right here in this faith community. Now, if you are new around here, uh, maybe you're supporting someone uh, who's getting baptized, or maybe you just happen to choose like the best Sunday ever to tune in. We are in a series right now titled Controversial Jesus. In fact, we're heading into part seven of 12 today. Uh, and this is a series where we have already covered the the following topics, exclusivity, the sexual revolution, the gay community, the transgender movement, and abortion. So as you can tell, uh, we decided to just kind of take it easy this fall. Now, if you haven't been here for the entirety of this series, have no fear. You can always get yourself caught up at grumlaw.com messages, or you can find us under Grumlaw Church, wherever it is that you grab your podcasts. Here is why we decided to tackle these topics this fall or more appropriately stated, why God led us to cover these topics. In a nutshell, and we covered this at length in part one, if the church doesn't disciple you, the world sure will. And we've obviously been seeing this in increasing measure over the last couple of years. And it's not just the Christians, but rather the world at large that is beginning to ask, are, are, are we sure we're doing it right? Like, are we sure this, this current way with which we're navigating life is, is the best way? Are, are we sure this is how we're supposed to navigate our sexuality? Are we sure abortion is simply a woman's right? Are we sure you do you is, is good advice? I've been mentioning this ad nauseum over the last couple of years. There's a genuine curiosity from those on the outside of the church looking in of which I have never experienced in my lifetime. A sense that something is, is broken and, and it's causing people to lean in and ask, what, what does the God of Christianity have to say about, about all of this? But perhaps it's that curiosity that led you to come and check things out today. So rather than asking the question, what, what do I think about this? Or, or what does culture have to say on this topic? Instead, we're asking, well, what does God say about this? What type of loving kind counsel does God offer on these subjects in his living, breathing word? Trusting that God is for us, that he is for you. And if you aren't sure if you quite believe that yet, consider the lengths that he went to in order to win you back when he sent his one and his only son to pay the penalty for, for your sins. I mean, if he would go to those lengths to rescue you, what, what else might he have waiting for you? Our perfect creator has given us the imperfect creation, a, a manual to navigate this life. That, that when followed, it leads to a life that's marked by peace and joy and contentment, the, the actual good life. This is something that, oh, by the way, we are all universally searching for. 
See, God doesn't give commands because he loves rules. God gives commands because he loves you. He's looking further down the road than you and I often have the ability to see and trying to protect us from our own poor decision-making. Think, think train tracks, not prison bars. Train tracks to joy and peace and contentment and escaping them isn't freedom, it's, it's a train wreck. And, and seriously, th- think about how kind, how, how loving that is on God's part. He, he didn't have to give us this gift, but, but he did because he cares that much about you. So today we're going to be talking about a topic that, that has impacted every single person who is watching right now at, at some level. Jesus and marriage and, and divorce. And if I was going to create an even longer title, it would be Jesus and marriage and divorce and singleness, but, but that would have been a lot to cram like into one text box. So, so let's dive right into it. Uh, we're going to start by today by uh, diving right into our teaching text. Uh, these are some of the words from, from Jesus himself, as you're going to see uh, when he was asked a, a question regarding divorce very directly by a group of very religious people. We look to Matthew chapter 19. This is one of the four biographical accounts of the life of Jesus, verses 3 through 12. Some Pharisees, Pharisees being the religious people, came and tried to trap him, him being Jesus, with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? Haven't you read the scriptures, Jesus replied. They record that from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Then why did Moses say in the law that a man could give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away, they asked. Jesus replied, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts, but it was not what God had originally intended. And I tell you this, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery unless his wife has been unfaithful. Jesus' disciples then said to him, and I would add rather exasperated, if this is the case, it's better not to marry. Not everyone can accept the statement, Jesus said. Only those whom God helps. Some are born as eunuchs, some have been made eunuchs by others, and some choose not to marry for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let anyone accept this who can. Uh, Y'all have probably seen the statistics, or at least you're generally aware of them. Roughly half of all marriages will end in divorce, with the rate of divorce actually being even higher for those who remarry, around 63%. Uh, Less kids will live the entirety of their childhood with both parents than those with only one parent. Uh, I mentioned this earlier in the series. We find ourselves a part of the first civilization in human history where nearly as many children will grow up without fathers as they will with them. Now, it's worth noting uh, that nobody denies those statistics. And it's actually led to a bit of unity between the secular world and followers of Jesus. There's an agreement that something does seem to be broken. Now, our solution for this brokenness between the secular individual and the Christian, as you might guess, head in squarely different directions. Secular culture says, tear the whole system down. And we're left with prenuptial agreements and timeshare children, marriages between people of the same sex. Scripture offers something far different. And here's why, even if you don't call yourself a follower of Jesus, you ought to listen to this advice from Scripture, from God's Word. What separates marriage from every other institution in society is that marriage was invented by God. There's quite literally a divine origin to it. And generally speaking, we ought to listen to the advice of the inventor, to the advice of the Creator. 
When you, for instance, got your first smartphone, do you remember that? For, for me, it was back in my college days, right? You, you read the manual. You, you watched YouTube videos. You listened to other people who were supposed experts on the subject. You wanted to understand what it was that you were holding and, and make sure that you were using it properly. How much more for an institution that affects us at such a deep, at such a cellular level? That there's never been a society, this is pretty interesting, there's never been a society found that didn't have marriage as a part of that society. Why? How could that be? It's because God invented marriage when he invented us. It speaks to the divine order. I mean, think about it very practically. Nothing inside of us, nothing at a fleshly level would say to, to settle down with, with one person for a lifetime. But, but yet millions of people get married every single year, even with all of those stats staring at us right in the face. God placed that longing in us. It's so much more than a social invention. This is why I will take this a step further and say, you can't look at marriage without appealing to the design of the inventor. To, to try to separate God from marriage is an exercise in futility. It's the epitome of chasing your tail. And it's why we find ourselves in the mess of our current age. As one of my favorite preachers and authors, Tim Keller, puts it, if you pick up a gun, you have to deal with the design of the maker. The gun manufacturer designed the gun to aim away from you. And if you don't submit to it, you will shoot yourself. So it is with marriage. So when you enter into marriage, you enter into the regulations of the creator. What God institutes, he regulates. What God institutes, he regulates. I have sat down with countless couples, and this is just kind of part of the role that I have as a pastor, uh, many couples who find themselves at a bit of a rough patch in their marriage. And in those instances, I attempt to pass on to them the advice that God would offer on this topic, only to be told over and over again, not exclusively, but oftentimes, don't tell me how to run my marriage. See, in those instances, you're not rejecting your pastor's counsel, you're rejecting the creator's design. So, so, so good luck with that. It's likely that hard-headedness that earned you a seat in my office to begin with. Now, now, if you zone out for the rest of this message, please don't miss this. Entire message in one statement. Your marriage is not yours. It belongs to God as the inventor of marriage. And if you want it to work, or, or probably better stated, if you want your marriage to thrive, you need to submit to his design. So what does the inventor say about marriage, divorce, and, and singleness? We'll begin with marriage. The, the essence of marriage is a man leaving his father and mother and being joined with his wife. That's the key word there, joined. Now that word joined, it comes from a Greek word, which literally translated means to make a covenant or to make a public vow. Uh, oftentimes when I marry couples, and I have the privilege of doing this on a pretty regular basis, uh, they want to write their own vows, which I think is beautiful. But, but those vows typically reveal that they don't really understand the, the essence, the covenant of marriage. Now, every single couple thinks that their vows are all very, very unique. Uh, honestly, that they're not. It's generally the same kind of stuff. I love you more than anyone could ever love another person. Every time I see you, my heart flutters. When I, when I first met you, I knew. You get the idea. But, but here's the point. A marriage covenant has nothing to do with the present. To join with someone means to, to make a promise. And promises have nothing to do with the present and everything to do with the future. A wedding, per the inventor, has less to do with your present love. I mean, of course you love the person that you're marrying on your wedding day, 
but rather you are promising your future love. This I will be. See, if the essence of marriage was having babies or it was a feeling, then that it would be a momentary thing. But the essence of marriage is a covenant, making it a permanent thing. And in turn, it controls your future. And get this, the only way you can control your future and not be controlled by your future, that is your hormones and your genes and your circumstances, is a promise. Attaching your future to a covenant. So that's the essence of marriage. Number two, the purpose of marriage, the purpose of marriage is friendship. That this isn't asking what is marriage, it's asking what is marriage for. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man, speaking specifically of Adam, but generally to all of us, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. Now, the significance of this passage can't be overstated. And honestly, I was like nerding out on this. I thought this was so interesting as I was researching for, for this Sunday. This is the first malediction right here in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. It's the first malediction in scripture. Now, for like the two or three of you that don't know what a malediction is, I'm going to explain real quick. Uh, up to this point in the creation account, we are exclusively offered benedictions. You could think of a benediction as a good word. Right? If you read through Genesis chapter 1 and 2, you, you see all these statements that God made something and it was good. He, he created the heavens and the earth and it was good. He created the stars and it was good. He created the little things that scurry along the ground and it was good. So, so a malediction, if a benediction is a good word, a malediction is a bad word. And, and suddenly this malediction is declared. It, it is not good for Adam. It is not good for the man to be alone. Eve is created to deal with Adam's loneliness, to, to complete Adam. Jerry Maguire stole that line from the Bible. The, the essence of marriage is a covenant, but the purpose of marriage is deep abiding friendship. Um, I, I consider it such a privilege to be married to my wife, Andrea. Uh, I, I can tell you with, with full integrity that there have been very, very few low moments in our marriage, very few instances where, where we don't get along, where I'm not excited to see her when I get home. And I think a huge part of that rests in the fact that we cultivated a deep friendship before we said, I do. She, she, was, she was my best friend before she was my wife. I love to spend time with Andrea, my best friend. Now, quick little tangent on this. And by the way, if you do this, please don't take this the wrong way. I'll often see couples that, that'll go on like week-long, two-week-long vacations together. And honestly, I just, I don't get it. Call me selfish, but the only person that I want to spend a week straight with alone is, is, is my best buddy, my best friend, my wife, Andrea. I have a lot of friends, but there's exactly one person that I want sitting in my living room each day when I get home. Single people, this is really important. This is why scripture is really, really clear about marrying people of the same faith commitment. Rather than looking at it as a rule, uh, as something that's oppressive, that this arbitrary thing that was meant for you know, thousands of years ago but isn't really applicable today, view it as a living principle. Th think about it. If the purpose of marriage is friendship, what is it that determines the depth of a relationship? Right? The, the depth to which you are known by that other individual. You go deep. You don't leave any rock unturned. They know everything about you and you know everything about them. And if following Jesus is a part of you, if not, hopefully, the single most important thing about you, and you reveal the intimacy of that relationship with Jesus with this person whom you are considering spending the rest of your life with, and they laugh 
or they snicker, or, or they think you're a fool, or, or they think you're superstitious, or perhaps simply that they just think you're wrong, like that's kind of your thing, it's not my thing. Y- you feel violated, right? You feel hurt. Y- you feel exposed. Very practically, church, and, and I recognize that what I'm about to say is going to be hard for some of you to receive, so I'll be very intentional with my tone right now. But very practically, it is impossible to have a deep friendship with someone who rejects who you are at your core. See, if they reject Jesus, they, they reject you. The, the most defining part of my life isn't my job or who I'm married to, or, or my children, or what I enjoy, or my hobbies. It's, it's my relationship with Jesus. So, so if my wife Andrea, for instance, was to reject that, or, or merely just be apathetic towards that, that the relationship with, would have a lid, it, w- it would have a ceiling, less deep abiding friendship, and more of this person that I happen to cohabitate with. For the married people who are watching right now, if the purpose of marriage is friendship, then you need to look carefully at yourself. To, to continually open yourself up to your spouse, I mean, over and over and over again, it is really hard work. And, and unfortunately, most people, most marriages get to a place where they resolve to keeping secrets. There's just some stuff I don't share with my spouse. Come on, we've all heard that before. Stuff you're afraid to bring up. Stuff that when you have brought it up, it, it, it leads to arguments. It's led to misunderstanding, maybe even a spouse laughing at you. Now, now this doesn't mean that we recount every detail of every day, but, but any lasting, any meaningful friendship is built upon confession and vulnerability. Last detail on this point, and back to the single people again. If the essence of marriage is a covenant, and the purpose of marriage is friendship, and romance and sexuality grows out of that, now I have your attention, What does this say about the way with which we usually decide whom we will court? Right? We walk into a room. We walk into the meeting. We walk into the restaurant. We walk into the social gathering. And typically, we choose the person whom we are most attracted to physically. So so, so we begin with romance. We begin with sexuality. And, And if we feel like, well, that's going well, then we'll build a friendship. You see my point? You are attempting to reverse the cosmic order of things. And and, and come on, single people. How many individuals have you passed over because you continue to attempt to reverse the biblical order? See, the truth is, is that Mr. and Mrs. Wright is probably out there. But because you continue to be directed by your flesh, you keep missing him. You keep missing her. Really vulnerable moment, and I'm glad that my kids are young and don't understand this stuff yet because uh, they would be horrified (laughs) by what I'm about to say. Uh, Andrew and I's sex life, it only gets better because sexual intimacy is birthed out of deep friendship, and our friendship only continues to grow as we know each other better and better and better. I mentioned this earlier in the series that the most sexually satisfied people, and this isn't a Christian thing, this is just raw data, the most sexually satisfied people on the planet are those who have had exactly one sexual partner throughout their lives. And and, and those who actually have the most sex are those in monogamous heterosexual relationships. Conversely, the more sexual partners you have, the lower the level of satisfaction. So so one more time, and, and no, this is not some conservative rant, it's just true, and every piece of data points to this. Sex grows out of friendship. Friendship does not grow out of sex. 
and even if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, come on, you know what I just said is true because your own experiences have revealed that to you. Last one here on marriage. Marriage must take priority, meaning it sits head and shoulders outside of your relationship with Jesus above every other relationship, every other interest, your career, every other hobby in your life. It must be the most important relationship in your life because it is the most powerful one. See, God didn't put a parent and a child in the garden or a brother and a sister or two people of the same gender. No, no, the archetypal, most quintessential, most primal relationship we can have is marriage. It must have priority because of its power. Think about it again, very practically. Marriage has the power to set the course of your life. If your marriage is weak and everything else about you is strong, your relationships at work, your career, the amount of money that you're earning, it hardly matters, does it? Your life will be defined by the weakness in your marriage. Now, conversely, if your marriage is strong and literally everything else is weak, you move out into the world in strength. Marriage is quite literally the vortex of your life. So to not prioritize it as such is utter foolishness. For for instance, marriage can recreate your self-image. In marriage, you will be amazed, don't miss this, you will be amazed to find that your spouse has the power in his or her hands to challenge the accumulated authority of all the verdicts that have ever been passed upon you. Think about it. If your husband thinks and expresses that you are an absolute bombshell, the opinion of the rest of the world hardly matters. Conversely, if every person on the planet tells you how beautiful you are, but yet your spouse tells you that you're ugly, you're not thinking too highly of yourself. Now, now last detail, and then I need to move on to divorce and singleness. It, It would be very easy to look at all of this and say, and by the way, this is exactly what the disciples said. Like, what's the use? Isn't this impossible? And and in your own power, the answer to that is yes. But with God at the center, it it will be the greatest joy this side of heaven. See, the reality is, is you aren't expected to navigate this through your own abilities. You need the guiding providential power of the Holy Spirit. If you lean on the Holy Spirit, if you follow the loving kind counsel that is contained within this book, if you follow the inventor's design, I'm telling you, it will be the greatest joy this side of heaven. So the essence of marriage is covenant, the purpose of marriage is friendship, and marriage must take priority. And it's only in light of all of that that we can understand Jesus' teaching on divorce, and I gotta move here pretty quick. Divorce is an amputation. Remind us of verse six. It says, since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. We live in a time where divorce has become completely acceptable, viewed as natural even. But, but if you understand that, that marriage is, is oneness, you, you cannot view divorce casually. Divorce is less like taking off a coat and more like taking off an arm. Divorce can happen. It can be survived, but it is as radical as losing a limb. And if you're listening right now and you feel like I'm being dramatic, talk to anyone who has walked through this and they will tell you that that is no exaggeration. Allow me to take this analogy a step further. Can you imagine a physician who 50% of the time when someone came into his or her office, he or she performed an amputation? It's like, man, I got COVID. He's like, man, we got to chop off your arm. 
like, gosh, I, I got this terrible stomach bung. He's like, man, we have to chop off your leg. That individual would be in prison. Yet, yet this is exactly how divorce is often approached. It should be a last resort. It's life-threatening. It, it, it is absolute worst-case scenario. Uh, additionally, I really felt like the Holy Spirit was impressing this specific point on my heart as I prepared. When someone undergoes an amputation, it, it takes some serious time to adjust to this new way of life where you literally lost a limb. And, and, and similarly, if someone finds themselves in the midst of a divorce, you need to take a lot of time before stepping into another relationship. And, and my goodness, have followers of Jesus followed lockstep with culture on this point. Not only the frequency of divorce, but the speed with which we will jump into another significant relationship. Church, you need time to heal. Otherwise, you will create damage in that next relationship that could have otherwise been avoided. Again, I mentioned that statistic earlier. 63% of people who choose to remarry end up in divorce. And the quicker that you step into that next relationship, those divorce rates only skyrocket even higher. Conversely, the longer you wait from your initial marriage and that divorce to step into another relationship, the higher the likelihood that that next marriage will last the long haul. I remember a mentor, a pastor friend of mine, Early on in ministry, he shared this with me, and I don't know, like he didn't have a Bible verse to point to, but he was staunch on this point after being in this for, for years and years and years, for decades. He would always say, at minimal, you should wait three years from the time of your divorce, from the time it was finalized, before you even choose to date. Number two, the second point here on divorce, divorce is sometimes necessary for life. The, the reality is, is that amputations are sometimes necessary. Again, in verse eight, Jesus replied, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts, but it was not what God had originally intended. Because of sin, so this is a problem, to be very clear, that we created. It wasn't a part of the original design. Because of sin, divorce is sometimes the only way to survive. And right here, Jesus lists the example of pornea. We covered this word earlier in the series. It's adultery as an instance where it would be permitted to divorce and remarry. The only other occasion that we find is in 1 Corinthians when Paul uses the example of desertion. Your spouse literally physically deserts you. And there they say, hey, you're free to remarry. And church, those are the only two instances where scripture says it's okay to divorce and remarry. That's it. And if I could just be again really clear, this is something that we avoid teaching in churches. It's what made me hesitate to, to like even include this in this series. But because divorce, it's become so commonplace. It's become so acceptable. But, but God gives very little wiggle room in this area. Now, now this raises the question, what if I had an unbiblical divorce? Or, or what if I remarried and my previous marriage didn't end for one of those two reasons? Quick answer, Nothing puts you outside of God's grace. Just like we've talked about in this series, if sexual immorality has been a part of your past or abortion or idolatry or worldly ideologies, there is forgiveness at the foot of the cross. That divorce is not the unforgivable sin because there is no such thing as an unforgivable sin. And it's what separates Christianity from every other faith tradition. When we repent and we seek forgiveness, God extends to us that which we deserve the least. 
when, when reading scripture, when reflecting on the lives of so many people right within this faith community, it's hard to miss that God loves redeeming the worst of situations, restoring beauty from ashes. Now, last point here, and speaking to singleness very briefly, singleness must be seen as a calling. Very simply, Jesus is telling us in this passage that some people are spiritually called to not marry. And the power of God in their life enables them to live unmarried. But, but this is only accomplished if it is viewed as a calling. See, if there wasn't any sin in this world, marriage would be the right decision for everyone. But because of the presence of sin, some people are called to singleness. Some for, for a part of their lives, uh, others for the entirety of their time on this earth. It, it doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you. It means you're being obedient to that calling and it shouldn't be viewed with skepticism as it so often is and maybe the church are the worst culprits of that. As with all steps of obedience, it should be celebrated. And let's not ignore that some of the most effective people for spreading the gospel have been single. And if you're looking for some examples, let's start with Paul and uh, Jesus. If you use your singleness, whether it's a season or a lifetime, and the freedom that comes along with that as an opportunity to serve others and serve God, God will use you mightily. Conversely, if you use that singleness and that freedom to serve yourself, it will destroy you. Church, please don't take the bait. And, and, and admittedly, churches have contributed to this, so, so I sincerely apologize. Don't view singleness as a curse. Use it as a blessing in order to more greatly leverage your life for the kingdom of God. In, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, it's preserved for us. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. Follow your creator's manual for, for marriage, for divorce, for singleness, and, and then you will flourish, you will blossom. You, you won't merely survive in this world, you, you will thrive. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for preserving these words for us, that, that your, your words are good and they are true. We, we thank you, God, that there is always forgiveness at your feet, that you never meet us with uh, shame or embarrassment or guilt. Uh, you're rather the God that just extends mercy upon mercy upon mercy upon mercy. We thank you for that grace that uh, you bestow upon us when we repent and turn to you. God, I pray specifically for those that are right now not in the midst of a particularly healthy marriage. I pray that this would be a message of hope, that you are a God that restores beauty from the ashes, that you're a God who provides restoration. I pray that you would renew that love for those couples that they would had for one another when, when they did say, I do, on their wedding day. I pray that they would do the hard work uh, of stepping into counseling and therapy and, and doing everything they can to, to make their marriage, again, not just survive, but again, thrive. I pray for those, God, who, who are dealing with the shame or the embarrassment of divorce. And I pray, God, um, that you would remind them uh, that that is never from you. That again, when we seek your forgiveness, when we seek and we repent, that again, you, you extend to that which we deserve the least. And God, I pray for those that, that are dealing with singleness, that have been maybe perhaps viewing it as a curse, that every conversation seems to go back to that. And they would remind themselves that right now, they will have more freedom than they ever will at any point in their lives. And that they would use and leverage that freedom for your kingdom, recognizing that it's actually a gift. We love you, Jesus. We thank you that you are so good, that you are so kind. And it's your name we pray.